welcome everyone back for another episode of the Dine Sports Podcast on the Dine Sports Podcast Network. Coming back to you guys after a little over a week-long break, and that was because we were absolutely swamped with our annual Dine Sports Charity Golf Tournament. So trying to plan a golf tournament during uh, normal times is challenging to say the least, but during a pandemic where you have all sorts of additional restrictions and protocols and policies and procedures and all that fun stuff that you got to follow along definitely took up a lot of our time so uh, we were able to pull it off this past weekend record numbers it was a sellout it was great we raised tons of money for three amazing local charities the boys and girls club of ottawa awesome ottawa and the oseg foundation so we'll be announcing some totals shortly just waiting to uh, reconcile some accounts with the golf course and tally everything up but hopefully we'll be writing some big checks to all three charities there and huge shout out and thank you to all of our sponsors all of our golfers who came out anyone who donated a silent auction item anyone who even just liked retweeted shared awareness about the event special shout out goes to our three gold sponsors who really stepped up to the plate this year that would be mike peters over at cannon by construction we had jason earl at elite environmental and we had trevor clark at remax boardwalk ottawa so massive thank you to all three of those individuals for truly being committed to uh, helping out the Ottawa community and charities who have been hit really, really hard during this pandemic. So getting back to the podcast, we are going to be talking all things basketball today. Super hoop special sitting down with us first. We've got the commissioner of the Canadian elite basketball league, the CEBL, Mr. Mike Morreale. We're going to be talking all things Canadian hoops, the relaunch. They're about to kick off season three. We talk about expansion plans, all of that and more. Then we sit down with Billy Reinhardt from SB Nation. He is a Brooklyn Nets reporter. He has been covering the team exclusively for quite a while now. So he has seen the evolution of the big three now down to just the big one with all sorts of injuries happening. And it looks like it's KD versus the world. So we break down a very interesting series, which looked like it might even be a sweep for the Nets based on how those first two games went. Then they go back to Milwaukee, injuries kick in again, and suddenly the Nets are looking like they might be backs against the ropes at this point. So we talk all things NBA playoffs with him, how he thinks the series is going to shape up in these pivotal best two out of three for the next couple games and more. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Sitting down with CEBL Commissioner Mike Morreale. Joining us today on the podcast, we've got Commissioner of the Canadian Elite Basketball League, Mr. Mike Morielli. Mike, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How about yourself? Oh, can't complain. The sun is shining out there, so we're finally getting some summer weather. It's looking like we can finally emerge from our, our COVID lockdown hibernation slowly but surely, so... It's getting good. We're, we're, we're coming around the corner. Obviously, you guys have been preparing for a while now, but big news just dropped this week as well. You finally got the 100% green light from the provincial governments that all of your hard work is indeed going to come to fruition and season three is a go. How much of a relief is that? Oh, you know, it, it's a tremendous relief, but it's very short-lived because it's like, okay, we got it. Great. Now back to work. Uh, so uh, but it is a, a comfort to not have that that stressful part kind of weighing on you as you're preparing. So um, that was a good day when we got those uh, those calls for sure. Yeah. And if we rewind to last year, obviously you had to do the bubble format and you guys make it look easy on television, but I'm sure there's a million and one moving parts going on behind the scenes. So for those who might not be a, an event management specialist or something like that, like <laughs> what kind of logistics actually went into pulling off that bubble and having the success that you did without any outbreaks or positive cases or anything coming from that? Well, I mean, it was a tremendous amount of work. What, what would have taken us, you know, last year, four or five months to plan and execute, we did in four or five weeks. So it was all hands on deck. And it was at the same time, working with, you know, other third parties, like our hotel partner or our training partner or the Meridian Center, where we played to make sure that they were at the same speed we were and able to accommodate us. And of course, you're dealing with 250 plus people um, who have their own beliefs on COVID and their own emotions tied to it, uh, let alone 
making sure you get players in and out of the country through the border and they got a quarantine and, and set up practice time and, and workout time and, and the schedule and broadcasters, I can go on and on, but it is a, yeah, uh, it gives you a sense of the, the, the multiple moving parts. Um, and all along that time we're, we were still awaiting our approvals at that point last year. So you add the, the complexities of the stress that comes with that and, and, you know, a regular game day is, is stressful, but you're, when you're doing 26 regular game days, all within a condensed period of time with a bunch of moving parts, it has its moments, but it's the end result that counts. And it, uh, it worked out fantastic. And, uh, and we will benefit from that uh, going into this year as well. And obviously it was super high level basketball, lots of memorable moments on the court and all that that happened. But I'm just curious as a commissioner there, were there any memorable moments maybe off the court that really just came together that you'll remember moving forward, looking back on your time in the bubble? Yeah. I mean, there were so many, I, I guess, you know, little check marks along the way, but it's hard to really appreciate them till you're, till you're all said and done. So my favorite part was the end with the confetti coming down and I was happy for anyone to win, of course, as the commissioner, but I was really happy for our staff, um, not only here in the league office, but across the league to, to be a part of something and accomplish something that very, very few people uh, would have had the ability to accomplish or the opportunity. I'm not sure anybody wants the opportunity, but uh, it's, a, it's a feather in the cap for us moving forward, for sure on top of global pandemic, you're in a bubble, all these changes already, you guys must have been glutton for punishment because you decided to add another wrinkle and introduce the Elam ending as well last year. So what was the feedback that you got from both players, coaches, fans, as far as it being implemented into the game? Well, the initial feedback from a basketball point of view was not like overwhelmingly, hey, that's awesome. It's, you know, you're adding something to the bat to the sport. When you when the basketball people, the coaches, the players and everything enters into kind of what we're doing, the complexity changes because now it's very competitive, very, you know, everything's about winning and, and you know, nothing will stay in their way. And that's great. That's what we want. But when you add a little wrinkle at first, it's like, yeah, I'm not too sure. But they, to their credit, all the coaches and players, everybody jumped in. And, and I think overwhelmingly uh, were happy with the results. And, and, you know, most importantly is we did a big deep data dive at the end of it with Dr. Elam, who created the Elam ending. And he analyzed every game, um, every situation, and really broke it down to numbers for us. So then, it, then you can actually look at it and, and see in black and white did this actually work as we had planned it? And it did, it worked perfectly. So, you know, the big thing for us this year, and we may not see it in Ontario, we may not see it in BC, but, you know, we'll, we'll probably in Saskatchewan and Edmonton see this Elam ending in action in front of fans at some point. And that's really what it's all about. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great way. It's the best way to end a basketball game. Uh, but the fan part of it is what makes it even more exciting. Yeah. And that's the million dollar question at this point is got all of these fans from coast to coast who want to see their hometown teams in action. And here we are in Ottawa. We've had the blackjacks, but we haven't seen them play a single game yet aside right. from on television. So have you guys gotten any kind of indication from the provincial governments or public health units as far as, okay, we, we know you want fans back, but we need such and such a threshold to have been passed or we need to reach such a vaccination rate. Like, have they given you any kind of indication of markers that you guys need to meet to get fans back in the stands? They have, and it's really what everyone has seen. So it's the, it's the public kind of rollout stages plan and every, every province is slightly different, but in Alberta and in Saskatchewan, Alberta has said basically by the end of June or beginning of July, if everything stays and they hit the targets and vaccination and, and hospitalizations, that it's a full go reopening. So that's encouraging. Um, so we are preparing now for, for fans in those markets and it still remains to be seen how and when and how many, because that'll be kind of step two um, that we're working on. And then in Saskatchewan, it's very similar. They're looking at June, July 11th-ish for kind of a, a more massive reopening. And then in BC, Ontario, it's, if you look at the stage planned reopening, it's going to be probably near the end or beyond our regular season um, schedule, but that's okay. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to work within the guidelines. That's most important. And we'll work with public health if and when those things changes. And we've seen other provinces move up their, their uh, 
planned reopening because things are going well. So uh, I, I'm bullish on it, but at the same time, I'm mentally prepared that if we don't, we don't. But we have put, specific to Ottawa, we have put in a request uh, on behalf of uh, the Blackjacks to the Premier to see if we can't get you know 300 uh, uh, fully vaccinated healthcare workers into the building for the first three games, just to as a, an appreciation, of course, and as a way to kind of see what it's like when we do eventually reopen, right? And not just for us, but even for other sports that play in venues uh, like ours. Yeah, absolutely. And knock on wood here, hopefully the Blackjacks go on a nice deep playoff run and then we can actually get some more yeah. <laughs> building and extend that timeline a little bit. But outside of the bubble itself, what kind of changes from last year to this year might we see? Like, for example, last year in the bubble, you obviously had no benches. They were all sort of scattered in individual chairs and all that. Is that sort of a regional thing where if it's a game in, let's say, Edmonton, there'll be player benches. But if it's a game in Ottawa, they're going to be spread out. Like, how is that sort of thing working out this year? Yeah, so we every team will have very similar protocols. So even if there's a, a full reopening, the player benches will still be staggered and there'll still be plexiglass between, you know, the minor officials and the broadcasters and mask wearing, et cetera. So that will stay the same. And that's just out, that's written into the protocols that have been approved. And that's part of going above and beyond. Um, now, will that be replicated from fans in the building? It all depends. It really depends on, on local public health. But we're going to take that approach. And um, the, the players are good with it. I mean, it's it's become commonplace. So in that respect, they've, they've come off European seasons or other seasons where they're used to it. So they just want to play basketball. So in that respect, things will stay relatively the same um, because we want to be just a few notches above what what is recommended for the general public because we want to we want to complete our season and have a good season. If we put the global pandemic aside here and just look at your entire run as commissioner, what's been maybe one of the challenges or more challenging aspects of the role of commissioner of a professional sports league that you maybe didn't anticipate running into ahead of time? That's a good question. I mean, everything is a challenge when you're starting from scratch. Everything's exciting when you're starting from scratch. Everything's very creative. So um, there's no special challenges, let's say, but there are, you know, the way we operate is different from other leagues. I think the challenge may be in this landscape is, is trying to let people know and, you know, people in, in, in government or people in power that we are different than the NBA or the NHL or Major League Baseball. We're not run by, you know, billionaire owners uh, based out of the U.S., we're a made in Canada league played by Canadians and played and made for Canadians. And, you know, I, I think we've become more um, important to the, the grassroots development and the pathway and, and the uh, amateur side than some of the major leagues do because their thought processes are different and they're supported differently. So those are challenging situations because you still, as a young, let's say startup league still, you, you want a challenge to be recognized and be noticed, um, not just here, but internationally. And, and sometimes in basketball, you can be, you know, we're, we're recognized internationally, maybe more than we are domestically and sometimes. And that's just based on some, how Canadians sometimes look at their pro sports leagues, if they're Canadians. And, but those challenges to me are just opportunities, to be honest with you. Yeah, you hit on something there in the sense that you guys have, there have been various iterations of professional basketball leagues in Canada over the years, but you guys have really made a concentrated effort to be aligned with Basketball Canada, to get involved with the U sport system and having your U sport draft and all of that. Are we going to be looking at eventually getting more involved with the U sport draft and expanding beyond the current, what I think it's three rounds that you guys currently do for the draft? Like we're going to five or seven. Like what's sort of the future? For the CEBL, the U Sport, the Basketball Canada, do you guys have anything five years down the line that you would love to get to one day? Well, yeah, we're working on now a lot of kind of uh, expanding, you know, our presence beyond our four-month season. So getting into more international events, more relationships with international federations, more FIBA-related events, representing Canada on behalf of Canada Basketball. Um, our U Sports partnership is great. Um, and not, it's not just limited to the draft. Obviously we can pick up players as free agents, et cetera. So there are, you know, quite a few players, but, um, that will continue to grow, I think. And the talent levels there that it, 
it's going to be less about we need to segment this small amount just for there. I think it's just going to be we're going to get the best players, and that includes you sports, and that's what happens. Um, same with Canadian college. We don't have a draft for Canadian college, but we still pick up uh, Canadian college players, right? So if, if you're a good player, you're going to get noticed, and we'll provide the opportunity to do so. And then the real opportunity, I think, for us beyond you know Canada is the international piece. Right now, it's predominantly U.S. players, G League players, you know, high-level uh, players that played out in Europe, et cetera, played in the NBA or draft picks, which are fantastic. But we also want to add that international development. So a Japanese player, a Filipino player, uh, you know, a European, Italian, whatever. We really want to grow that. And COVID's throwing a bit of a hiccup in that, obviously, because the borders and travel. But that's on our, on the horizon for sure. And speaking of expansions, you guys recently announced that gearing up for 2022 you guys are looking at Montreal as a possible expansion franchise how did you guys ultimately settle on Montreal as being the next location that you guys are looking to place a franchise in for the CBL I think Montreal has been a location from day one but you know because of how we operate as a single entity we have to make sure we can actually you know accomplish what we want to accomplish in a certain period of time so you know we started with six teams we added Ottawa for our seventh last year um, we wanted to be in Ottawa in the beginning, but Ottawa is a bit of a special market. You know, there's the bilingual nature to it. It's a big city. We wanted to make sure we approached it properly, which is why we took our time. And the same reason we took our time for Montreal. Montreal is a massive market, obviously the biggest francophone market, but also becomes our biggest market before we add some other teams down the road and, you know, truly bilingual. So you have to be prepared in different ways and in how you approach it and, and how it's accepted locally. So you know, that, that takes some time, but there's other markets, there's Winnipeg, there's Calgary, there's, you know, BC or Kelowna, and there's the out East, or that's Newfoundland and Halifax and uh, Quebec city is a national, natural extension to Montreal. So there uh, we've approached everything the same. We just have to be very smart in how we do it and consistent in how we do it and, and take our time. And, and sometimes we wait and sometimes we won't, I think, you know, there are markets we want to get to, and we'll get there quicker than than we have to or qu quicker than we have in the past because we know our business a lot better now. On top of the expansion announcement, you guys also decided you're going to try and crowdsource some of the ideas around the team itself. So everything from the team name to colors and logos, all of that good stuff. Now, anytime you open things up to public opinion, you're going to get a wide variety of submissions, right? Everything from really high-end polished stuff that mm -hmm. might actually be in the consideration for logos and that to Steve's being a jackass and submitted this name there <laughs> and it's never going to get considered. Have you guys started to actually sort through any of those fan submissions yet? And if so, like, what has the response been like on that front? Yeah, no, the response was great. Within a week, we've had over a thousand, you know, when we first did over a thousand submissions, I haven't even gone back to look since then uh, but we've taken a lot of that information we've compiled it we've used it as a point of reference and there are some terrible ones They're the typical hey i'm in ontario name them the poutines i mean we get it but it's probably not a joke to them as we're <laughs> looking at it but you know and then there's some really good ones and there's really concepts that maybe don't work for montreal but kind of make you think hey that might be good for another one down the road right you try and balance what you're trying to do so the response has been tremendous the process has been started. Um, we are, you know, close to narrowing down the team name and, and colors and logos and everything for a, a public launch later this summer. So um, the, the fans have played a major part in that because they they bring up ideas and they, they bring up local ideas that maybe we don't think of. And we have we have team on the ground there that's obviously local to uh, to Montreal. So that that is a big thing. It's not just a bunch of guys sitting back here making decisions and not knowing. Um, so, you know, but the, the fan interest has been very important. Yeah. When you guys do narrow it down, are you looking to then launch, say, a final five and again do the public ballot and see what the reaction is like there? Or are you guys, all right, this is your chance to get your input in now and we'll ultimately make sort of that decision and say, by the way, Montreal will be called the blanks moving forward. How's that process going to roll out? Yeah, I think we're just going to go right to the to the end product. Um, not because, you know, we want to skip a step, but, you know, I, I think we know where we want to go. And um, and it's because of all the, the stuff that's been submitted. And, it, you know, they're, they're a wide range of submissions. And we want to look at it that way rather than narrowing it down. We'll, we'll narrow it down in the context of, 
really large to big. And, um, and that way save up a little bit of a surprise and allow us to work on things as well. You mentioned earlier some other possible expansion locations, everything from East Coast to West Coast and everywhere else in between there. But looking down the line, maybe five, even 10 years, like as a commissioner, what's sort of that sweet spot as far as total number of teams you'd eventually like to get? Because you don't want to get oversaturated with teams and not be able to support the league anymore there. But what's that sort of sweet spot number? Is it 15? Is it 20? What do you think? It's, it's 15 to 16 or pardon me, 14 to 16. You know, we want to stay away from the odd numbers because it always throws a wrench into, into scheduling, but, uh, and then move to a more divisional model, whether that's a, a West, a central and an East. And then that changes the, the travel implications. Right now we travel all across the country, uh, a little bit limited this year because of COVID, but that's where we're looking to get to. And uh, initially it was 12. And then we realized, I think we're selling ourselves short here. There's some real opportunities. There's some markets that we'd like to be in. And there's also other markets that popped up we never thought of that we'd like to be in too. So it will be done in a very smart, uh, pragmatic way. And we'll take our time to do it. But at the same time, there's, there's a, a lot of interest. So getting to that number in the next three, four, five years is, is not a, as much of a challenge um, as one would think. Mm -hmm. And being a new league takes time to get some of those rivalries up and running. And you mentioned Montreal, it would be great to get a Quebec city and then have that natural rivalry there and all of that. But just even in season three about to kick off, what are some of the budding rivalries that you've noticed as a commissioner? There's a little something extra to those games when two teams meet. Well, yeah, I think the Southern Ontario teams have a great little rivalry amongst each other. You know, everybody seems to not like one another, which is which is great. You know, I it, it not like it in, in the right sense of the word. Like, there's a lot of competition, whether it's Niagara versus uh, Hamilton or, or Hamilton versus Guelph or or vice versa. Ottawa is is still kind of feeling that out, but with Montreal coming, that's a natural extension. Mm -hmm. um, I think we'll find some more rivalries uh, brew this year in in the Southern Ontario market, and then we have those kind of rivalries that have existed in um, out west for a while, and and all three are kind of they're yeah they don't like each other, and it's all come naturally. I think that's the most important. We're not trying to create rivalries; they have to be created by the fans themselves, and we just kind of benefit from them. So. They're well on their way, but there will be more. And every year that kind of emerges, you know, different groups that maybe, you know, last year we ended up Fraser Valley against the world. Uh, I don't think anyone liked playing them and they didn't like playing anybody else. And and so it's it's a fun process to watch happen in, in front of your eyes. All right. Well, before we let you go here, I mean, I'm already a season ticket holder for the Blackjack, so oh, you nice. already got me hook, line, and sinker. But if there was someone out there who wasn't familiar with the CEBL and wasn't sort of sure, okay, well, maybe I'll buy a ticket and figure out what it's like. What's your elevator pitch on what they can expect at a CEBL game once fans are eventually let back into stadiums and all of that? Yeah, listen, this is the best basketball in this country outside of the Toronto Raptors. Uh, no doubt about it. Um, it's high-level entertainment played by some of the best Canadian talent uh, that is playing professionally all over the world. And we're just bringing them back and showcasing them in our home markets. Uh, and these are people you know or people you went to school with or people you heard of or you watched on TV. And it's an entertainment package. We, we play basketball, but you're there for, you know, the, the pregame, the during the game, the half game, the DJs, the music, the excitement. Um, and the fact that we're a spring and summer sport, it, it affords the ability to be and entertain yourself outside and, and be the start of the night or the end of the night or, or what have you, a great family outing, a great outing with, you know, friends um, and a real fun time. Amazing. Well, the season kicks off June 24th. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us. We really appreciate it. Best of luck with season three of the CEBL. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Taking a quick break before we get to our interview with Billy to talk to you guys about our friends over at MyBookie. You can head over to mybookie.ag and check out the friendliest lines on the internet to get your gambling fix on, whether it's horse racing, whether MMA, whatever the case might be, NBA playoffs going on right now, MLB in the thick of things. You can sprinkle a little parlay in there. Looking across the schedule tonight, I like the Blue Jays over the Yankees money line, plus the Bucks to beat the Nets. 
put those two together on a nice little parlay, get plus 185 odds over at my bookie. So head on over there. You can follow my advice. You can make your own bet. You can do whatever the heck you want, but make sure you use the promo code DYNESports. That's D-Y-N-E-S, sports with an S at the end of it. No space in between so that they know who sent you. Better yet, head over to DynesPressBox.com. Check out a few articles, get caught up on some of the latest developments in the sports world, and then click on any of the links that we have up there. They'll take you over there automatically, pre-populate those codes. And make sure you take advantage as well, too, of their first deposit bonuses. So if you've never made a deposit with them before, be sure to take advantage of one of those there. And hey, maybe double up on some money, maybe play with some free house money. Who knows? Whatever you do, though, please gamble responsibly. Must be 18 or older. And if you or someone you know has a gambling problem, there's all sorts of online information that on their website that you can get the right and appropriate help for you. Only gamble what you are willing to lose. Make sure you use the promo code though, Dines Sports, when you head over there. Now let's sit down to talk all things Brooklyn Nets with Billy Reinhardt. And sitting down with us today on the podcast, we've got Billy Reinhardt, who is a Brooklyn Nets and NBA reporter for Nets Daily and SB Nation. Billy, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. So when we first set up this meeting, Nets were up, I think, 2 nothing. I figured, oh my God, like it might be a sweep. We might not have as much to talk about. Well, talk about a swing of momentum back in the Bucks' favor. Nets go up 2 nothing on the heels of a 39-point blowout. What changed between games two and three that you think really swung this back in the Bucks' favor, aside from the big news obviously being injuries playing a huge factor in this series so far? Yeah, if you asked me a few days back, even after the game three loss, I would have thought there was no way at all that the Nets were going to lose this series. I mean, they just seemed like they were in complete control. And even in the loss in game three, they lost just by a few points at the buzzer. Bruce Brown made a weird attempt at the end of the game instead of getting into the stars. Um, and the Nets shot just very poorly, which was uncharacteristic of them. Joe Harris was one for 11. KD had a poor game. It was just, you chalk it up to one of those games. Um, going into game four, you were confident the Nets would advance back, and then they still had home court advantage should they go home. Um, but as you mentioned, the Kyrie Irving injury changes everything for the Nets and already down James Harden. I thought this team could withstand the loss to one of their stars and still win the series, but two at a time now with KD by himself, um, that, that might be too tall of a task for, for even Kevin Durant. So, I mean, that, that's difficult there. The one advantage the Nets might have going back home is maybe the refereeing will be a little more um, to their favor because when the series shifted to Milwaukee, the referees were getting, uh, they were really letting them play and, and the Bucks that suits them, that physicality, PJ Tucker on Kevin Durant and so forth. So, uh, if we can get back to the style of basketball that was being played in Brooklyn, I think that serves the Nets well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you just touched on it right there. Obviously, the physicality playing a huge factor there, especially with P.J. Tucker. We had the incident where you've got KD's actual bodyguard coming onto the court and, you know, having to be uh, banned for the rest of the series and all of that. But how much of that do you think is just getting hyped up in news clips and sound bites and all of that versus how much do you think that really is affecting Kevin Durant's game as far as that physicality that he's starting to see from the Bucks? I think Kevin Durant, he's proven over the course of his career, he's one of the greatest scorers you've ever seen. So I don't think physicality is all of a sudden in whatever he's in, you're 14 now or something, is going to really take him off his game. He's seen every coverage in the league. He's played P.J. Tucker numerous times in those Warriors-Rockets matchups. So um Kevin Durant's familiar with with what PJ Tucker brings I do think the referees do play a part and every referee group does have a different style and they'll let them play a little more but PJ Tucker did get away with a little bit more in Milwaukee you could argue it was a foul or it wasn't a foul but I think we can all agree that it was a more physical style so um you got to credit Milwaukee they have a tough group of defenders even when you switch Tucker off him you got Drew Holiday Chris Middleton Giannis they're all waiting for KD so it's a tough group to go against uh at the same time KD's too good to be stifled for long so um, I expect him coming back home, realizing all the pressures on him with, with Harden and Kyrie out now that he's going to come and have a bounce back performance. But he needs some help from his teammates because um, that floor is going to be cramped up all over him. If Joe Harris continues to shoot poorly, if Landry Shaman gives the Nets nothing, Blake Griffin's got to step up, Jeff Green. So uh, the Nets need some help around KD, but I'd expect KD to have a bounce back performance. 
and obviously depth is going to be playing a huge factor in this series because this Brooklyn Nets team really is an all in on a title this year. And you can see in some of the moves, obviously they had to, they brought in Aldridge. They only got five games out of him before he ended up leaving there. Harden's down with an injury. Irving's now down with an injury. The depth uh, beyond that though, how much of this is really going to be KD versus the Bucks? two out of three is at this point, essentially, or do you see one of those players like a Harris or someone else really? stepping up in the way that some of the Bucks players have this year compared to in years past well I think Joe Harris I mean he went from being a fourth fourth piece kind of a complimentary role player to now he's elevated to maybe the second best player on this team um and, and so he can't be someone that's going to you, you could take his uh contributions or you can you could still maybe win I mean he has to be relied upon as a reliable number two option at this point so um, if Joe Harris doesn't give the Nets 15 to 20 points at least um I'm not sure the Nets have um the, the capability to put up near 100 points that's going to take to win this game you're going to need 30 35 plus from Kevin Durant that's a given with with Harden and Kyrie down and then you're going to need Blake to step up Jeff Green to step up and someone else to get going so you're asking a lot of these role players to have really good games I wouldn't put it past them it could happen um, but it's a tall task for the Nets and I think the hope is that the Nets could compete tomorrow night um, Tuesday night but maybe not win because I think it's a tall task, but you still have the game six as a little bit of a safety net. And I think there's a better chance that James Harden could return for that. So if the Nets can get Harden back for game six and they have Harden and Katie in the fold facing elimination with their veteran experience, the hope is they could seal that game and then force it to a game seven at home and Harden has another day to recover. And I think it's really uh, unlikely we see Kyrie Irving the rest of this series, but Harden, I think, has a little bit of a chance to come back in a game six or seven. Yeah. People have always, you know, given KD crap about going to the Golden State and winning a couple titles and for whatever reason saying that, you know what, these titles don't count as much as, you know, other titles that people have won because he joined a super team and all that nonsense there. But really this year, in the sense of he doesn't have his two out of the big three aren't there, right? So it really is going to be KD and sort of the also rans for the Nets running in game five, at least tomorrow night. How much do you think legacy wise, this is going to be important to KD's career? Because if he bows out here, it just gives those haters more fuel to the fire of, oh, he can't get it done unless it's a super team. And on the flip side of the coin, if he does end up beating the Bucks and, you know, the Nets end up winning it all this year, that's something he can almost hang his hat on as far as, hey, look, I got it done even when my A and B options weren't there with me. Yeah, I think most rational NBA fans um, are not going to hold the series against Kevin Durant if he's shorthand. I mean, you're going to get the hot take, the, the mainstream media guys that, that are really looking to those legacy arguments for any conversation whatsoever. They're going to they're jump on this. But um, I think anyone looking at this, it's not just KD versus Giannis as a lot of the people want to look at and, and say it is. I mean, you still have Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday there. Middleton since been an all-star the last few years. Drew Holly's been an all-star in the past. Um, those guys are still there. I mean, the Nets have guys on the level, I guess, of Brooke Lopers or P.J. Tucker with Joe Harris and, and Blake Griffin, Jeff Green, but they don't have a Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday without Kyrie and Harden in the fold. So, like I said, it's a very tough test for KD. If he did pull it off, I think it would be great for his legacy. Um, I think they'd only do him well, but I, I don't think any rational NBA fan is going to kill Kevin Durant for not being able to win with two of the Nets' three best players down. Yeah, unfortunately, NBA Twitter is just littered with uh, those who are maybe not the most rational. <laughs> <laughs> but looking at the injuries, if we start with Kyrie, for example, here, right? Ankle sprain is not the greatest thing to be trying to play through for even the average player, let alone someone whose entire game revolves around fast cuts, stop, stire, tight handle, his first step, all of that. So that doesn't bode well for him. So reading between the lines, as far as the little information that the Nets have released out there, obviously he's not playing game five. Do you think it's just a smoke screen as far as, oh, we're taking it one game at a time, just so that the thought of Kyrie possibly coming back in this series is planted in the Bucks' head? Or do you think there's any kind of scenario where we actually see Kyrie come back if this series goes seven? I think initially after the game, Steve Nash was correct in not ruling him out for the series yet because they were waiting the results of, of the MRI. But now that we got the MRI back and it is an ankle sprain, the Nets did not say what grade it was. So that really doesn't give us a lot of insight into how long he'll be out. Uh, I think at this point, they're just taking it game by game. They probably have in their minds an internal um, idea of if he could be back or not based on the grade of that strain, but we have no idea. So um, it looked bad on replay. It looked like he turned it over completely. Kyrie is a guy, obviously, that you mentioned. He's playing on the perimeter. He needs his quickness. He needs his speed. Um, so I, like I said, I think it's unlikely we see him in this series. It's hard for me to say if there's any chance we see him. Should it get to maybe a game seven? 
um, just because we don't know the severity of the strain. But um, I, I do think it's very unlikely we see Kyrie just based on what it looked like to me on the replay. And just there's only one game day off between each of the games the rest of the way. So it'd be difficult to see him. But Harden, I would expect to see him at least by game seven. I think there's a chance for game six. Yeah. And Harden, is he essentially at this point, the Nets break in case of emergency plan right now where, okay, if game five goes tomorrow night and they end up winning, maybe he ends up sitting game six as well. And they try and win it outright without him and get that extra rest. Or do you think he is going to be ready to go come hell or high water, regardless of the outcome for game six? I mean, that's interesting. I really haven't thought that much just because I I would be very, very surprised if the Nets won tomorrow night, not not to be a Debbie Downer there, but I mean, I really haven't thought of the idea that they win tomorrow night to me. They're not winning a game until James Harden returns. And if James Harden does return, I think they can win the series. So I think their, their, their fate really hinges on James Harden's injury. And um, he came here to be the guy that puts them over the top as that third star to win a title, win a title for his own legacy. And you know he's itching to be out there right now and play with his guys. This is what he came here for, for the playoff run. So it's got to be killing him to not be able to play. And um, I think he was patient trying to get over his injury while Kyrie was still there and the Nets were still winning. But now that it's really on him to return to save this team and save this season. Um, there's going to be a ton of pressure on him. And you just hope if he does come back, he doesn't further injure anything uh, significantly because uh, he's a pivotal piece, obviously going forward for this team. And as great as their aspirations are this season, this is a, a couple of year run with this team. You know, you just touched on it right there. You don't want to come back from it too early, risk further injury and end up having to having something that sits you out a full season, Clay Thompson style or something like that. If he does end up coming back, what percentage do you think we're, we're going to be seeing out of him? Is, is he going to be at 50% health? Is he going to be at 75%? Or do you think he's been out long enough that we'll see as close to peak James Harden as we will, given the fact that he is coming off a fairly lengthy time off? You know, it's tough to say as well. I mean, the Nets are very vague about their injury timelines. Um, they've been this way since Sean Marks took over the team years ago. Um, they don't they don't tell you the severity of the strains. They don't give timelines when players will return. It's very much day to day. He's rehabbing well. He's progressing. And we'll see kind of attitude. So um, it's been only about two weeks since James Harden initially injured his hamstring. He was able to walk off the court. He's standing on the sidelines. He seems like he's moving well. But the hamstring is one of those soft tissue injuries that you don't really know. He could try and make one quick burst, one quick cut and then feel it again. So uh, it's a tough injury. It's a tricky injury to get over. Um, so so who knows what happens with James Harden there? Uh and I think it's just from a Nets perspective, you're hoping for the best with him. I think he's going to push to play in a game six. And then from there, you're just crossing your fingers that he doesn't get injured. He can give you the most he can. But I mean, I, I can't imagine he'd be at full strength, but he's such a high IQ player and a smart player, smart passer, kind of really the engine to the offense that I think he doesn't even have to move that much to be able to make the smart high IQ plays, uh, help get some better looks for Joe Harris and, and some of the shooters, because I mean, they're the guys that are struggling right now that can't create their own shots. They're missing a guy like James Harden that could set the table for them. So um, he would definitely make life easier for the Nets. And I think as soon as he's back in the fold, the Nets are going to win a game. So uh, it's just a matter of him being out there before they're eliminated. Yeah, the Nets seem to be taking a, a page out of the NHL playbook there, where it's super vague. It's either just upper or lower body injury. They don't give you any timelines or anything. <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine when they come back, but if someone was holding a gun to your head and gave you the option of, okay, you can get one of two players back at full strength. The other one doesn't come back for the playoffs whatsoever. Who would you choose out of Harden or Kyrie? Harden, 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 Harden. I think Harden is arguably the Nets' most important player, even above KD. Um, And a lot of people might shake their head at that, but from watching the Nets every game this season, the Nets were significantly better whenever James Harden was in the lineup. He's the engine to their offense. He's honestly underrated defensively. He's great for their switching defense because he's a very good communicator. He could slide down to the post and defend bigger players. Uh, he's so strong. So, I mean, he really makes everything go for this Nets team. He's a coach on the floor. And uh, I think Harden and KD, I mean, that's a team. If you look at it, take Kyrie out of the equation. If you're building a team that has James Harden and Kyrie, probably two top five players, I mean, most people would say, I mean, that's a team that's going to be able to win a title. And then the fact that the Nets have Kyrie is why they're a prohibitive favorite when they're healthy. But I think Harden and KD could definitely win a title. KD and Kyrie, probably, but it would be a little, little tougher. Um, I think Harden is an irreplaceable place for this piece for this team. Now, us being obviously a Canadian sports podcast here, I would be remiss if I didn't at least bring up our boy Steve Nash and the job he's doing down there. And good Canadian kid. A lot of chatter, though, preseason when he got hired about his lack of actual coaching experience. So for you as someone who's obviously following this Nets team fairly closely day in, day out, what's just been your general opinion of the job he's done in year one as head coach of the Nets? 
I think he's improved as the season has gone on. And when you think about why Steve Nash was hired and why he was a good fit for this job, when we were looking at all these coaching candidates last summer, we were trying to find someone that had connections and respect the respect of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving at the time. Um, and we were like, who can get their respect? Who's the guy who can convey a message to them? And they're going to respect that. Um, and Steve Nash, Hall of Famer, who knew he wanted to coach, but Sean Marks had a connection with him from their playing days in, in Phoenix. And it happened to work out. And I think that's been his best trait so far in terms of keeping this group together, uh, conveying the message to two guys that a lot of people from the outside thought um, would be a little bit of uh, a drama or a diva or a head case of sorts. So, um, and, and everything's been good. We really haven't had too many issues at all in, in Brooklyn when it comes to Katie and Kyrie and, and the, the internal workings of this team. So, I mean, they've been good in that standpoint. They've had a ton of injuries. They've dealt with a ton of obstacles throughout the uh, the course of the season and, and Nash has kept this team afloat. So I think in terms of that, which is most important in my opinion, when you have this amount of talent, um, keeping everyone together, he's been great. Um, in terms of the, the X's and O's stuff in the beginning of the season, his rotations were a little off. He wasn't really calling timeouts, but I think he's improved in all that as the season has gone on. And I've been, uh, very pleased with how the coaching staff has reacted to certain games. They're not too late to, uh, to make adjustments. They seem to play the right guys in certain matchups and, a lot of that goes to having such a veteran coaching staff with Mike D'Antoni, Ime Udoka, and a lot of experience on that staff. So it's not necessarily all Steve Nash, but he's had a lot of good guys to lean on. Absolutely. And, you know, that, that's sort of the follow-up question there as well, too, was those who were knocking the Steve Nash hire were saying that they overlooked some of the more experienced X's and O's coaches and the guys that have been there, whether it was at the college ranks or in the pros, then they gave Nash the position essentially to be almost an ego manager of all of these big primetime stars that were ultimately going to be on this Nets roster. Cause not only at the beginning of the season, do you obviously have KD and Kyrie, but they knew all along they're pushing their chips to the middle of the table. So every buyout contract they're going to be linked to, they're going to be trying to make trades all season long. So it could get even more star studded in that locker room. So it, would it be fair to say that at least in year one, and who knows what Steve Nash will go on to do in his coaching career, but in year one, it's maybe more of the assistant coaches, the D'Antonis and all of that, that are doing the actual offensive and de defensive scheming and X's and O's and rotations and all that. And Nash is more so acting as a manager and making sure everyone's cohesive and there's no flare-ups and keeping the team together? Or do you think he's taking more of a hands-on approach and is actually trying to really delve into maybe it's the analytics or the actual day-to-day -day operations of the team? Like what, what's your sense of how he's progressed across the season? You know, it's hard to say. I'd say everything the Nets do from the front office down, they, they always preach being collaborative. So I, I, I think it's really, they have a very big coaching staff. There's a lot of respect in that room, obviously between Nash and D'Antoni with their experience, but really with everyone there. So I think they're bouncing ideas off each other. They're collaborative in their approach and their schemes. Um, obviously, there's some overlap with what D'Antoni likes and you know, what Nash is used to. So uh, I think they have a lot of similar thinking people and collaboratively that they're putting together the best uh, scheme on both ends. Analytics is a big part of this team. Sean Marks has preached that from the beginning uh, when he got here. So uh, I think, like I said, I think it's collaborative from, from top to bottom. And Nash is taking a little bit more of a leadership role, obviously, as the season goes on. So if you're Nash in that head coaching and assistant coaching group there, and you're trying to come up with a scheme for game five tomorrow night, knowing you're without two of your big three, what does Brooklyn need to do to get any kind of a sniff at a victory in game five? Well, first things first, they don't have the same offensive firepower they had all season. This isn't the team that has arguably the best offensive firepower of all time. So they're going to have to keep the score a little bit lower. And their defense has been solid in this series. They had game two and game three kept the Bucks over nine, under 90 points, both of those games. So um, try and get back to that because um, they got to keep the score low. So if they could do that and then the main issue is offensively, they don't have a lot of creators. With Kyrie and Harden down and Spencer Dinwiddie being down from the beginning of the season, Mike James is really their only true point guard out there. So they're not going to be able to create a lot of offense from the perimeter. I think it's smart if they play inside out a little bit more. Maybe that's uh, post-KD up. Um, even post-Blake Griffin up, which they haven't done at all. I think he's someone they have to give post-touches post to, let him get his rhythm, because he's capable of a turn back the clock game, and that might be what you need. Um, in this situation. So even if he's not a scorer, I think dumping the ball down to Blake Griffin in the post, maybe he draws two and you can kick out to some of these shooters that can't create their own shots and maybe help getting get uh, Joe Harris, Landry Shamit, Tyler Johnson, Jeff Green, these guys going because um, it's going to be difficult to generate offense. But I think they got to try and play a little inside out because they're not going to have the same break, break it down off the dribble from the perimeter type of game.
who's maybe a player who hasn't been getting as many minutes as maybe they should have, but has been really effective and you've enjoyed the run that they've been on sort of to end the season and the games we've seen in the postseason so far. Like who's someone you think should get a bit of a longer look that's maybe been underutilized up till this point? I like Tyler Johnson. Um, he's been in and out of the rotation throughout the playoffs, but I think he's a smart player. He's a gritty player. He's a heady player. Um, and, and he gives you a little bit of a different look. Typically, the Nets have liked to play Johnson with James Harden. So as Harden's been out of the lineup, Johnson's minutes have tapered off because Johnson's a good com- combo guard could play with or without the ball. But next to Harden, he's playing more off the ball, really good catch and shoot from the corners. So um, they like that fit. But um, I think he should see some minutes, especially with all the guards down. Put him in the lineup. He can get hot from three. He's a guy who he got a big contract with the Miami Heat. Um, the Nets actually gave him that contract to restrict your free agents Miami match. So he's he's had big games before. He's been a player that's been relied upon to score. So I, I think he's someone that should get a little bit of a deeper look tonight. I mean, excuse me, tomorrow night. So, uh, yeah, I, I like Tyler Johnson all year. I think he's someone that needs a little more of a look. So switching focus to the Bucks for years, there's essentially been a playbook going all the way back to you know 2018 where you pack the paint and if you can minimize Giannis's impact on the game, you'll never fully remove him from the game. But if you can minimize his impact and force his Bucks teammates to have to step up and beat you, that's kind of the blueprint for success against Milwaukee in the playoffs. This year against the Nets, is it just a case of guess what? They happen to be running into all sorts of injuries and that allowed them to take both games in Milwaukee. Or have you seen any kind of a switch in philosophy or anything that they're doing on the court that looks different this year compared to past versions of the Bucks teams we've seen? I very much liked having that side defended Giannis, honestly, for the series. I think Blake Griffin's done a very good job for the most part. Um, he's physical with Blake. He's mobile enough with his feet to move laterally. laterally. He's taking a few charges on Giannis. So, I mean, I think Blake's been a really good matchup with Giannis. I think the Bucs are a better team this year than they have been. Obviously, adding Drew Holiday and P.J. Tucker helps. Um, but I think the main reason we're at 2-2 right now is because Kyrie Irving got hurt. I mean, even if it was 2-2 and you're coming back to Brooklyn, best of two out of three, and the Nets have two games at home and they have Kyrie and KD and they blew the doors off the Bucs the first two games, you'd feel very confident about the Nets' chances. But, I mean, this series is really about the Nets' injuries at this point. Uh, the Bucks have gotten better from prior years, but I think most people believed the Nets were going to win this series before the series. And then after seeing how the series went the first few games, I think um, that was even more, people were more confident in that. So I think it's all about Kyrie Irving's injury and uh, Giannis is a great player. He's going to get his, but I've been, I've been happy with how the Nets have, uh, have defended Giannis so far. If you look at some of those other contributors on that Bucks team, like we said in the past, they seem to just ghost themselves in the playoffs and can't find any help for Giannis. And, this year, you've got Holiday, you've got Middleton, you've got Lopez, you've even got Bryn Forbes is putting up points. So if you were to be trying to minimize the damage and slow down, and like you said, we've got to keep it a little bit slower paced and probably more defensively than the Nets are used to playing to because they don't have that firepower. Who is one of those box players that you're trying to maybe zero in on or throw them off their game? Like who strikes you as that little spark plug on their team that if you can get them off their game, continue to pack the paint and have Griffin on Giannis, that there's an outside chance of the Nets actually pulling off a miracle in game five. I mean, based on this series, it feels like it's Chris Middleton. I mean, he had a poor couple of games in Brooklyn. They went to Milwaukee. His play started to uptick and the Bucks were starting to roll. I mean, he's, he's their best pure scorer. Um, he scored all three levels. So, I mean, if the Nets can control Middleton and get him back to his production the first few games in Brooklyn, I mean, that should bode well for their chances because Drew Holiday hasn't done much this series. I mean, he could always step up in Middleton's absence, but we haven't seen that to this point. So I think if you can bottle up Middleton a little bit more, he's a little easier to defend than Giannis in terms of just not being as overwhelming physically. Um, Bruce Brown's done well on him. Katie's done well on points. Now you have Jeff Green back as another body to throw at him. If they can control Middleton, I think that that bodes well for the Nets. Just looking across the teams that are left in the NBA playoffs at this point here, is this probably the the biggest roadblock that the Nets have as far as getting towards that NBA championship that they want so badly? health problems aside as far as injuries and all of that but do you think this is going to be their toughest test or do you see whether it's you know Philadelphia or Atlanta in the next round or someone from the west being an even bigger challenge than this Bucks team that they're facing right now yeah a lot of people going to the series were calling this the NBA finals and uh, I kind of agree with them I thought the Bucks were going to be the toughest task for the Nets um, especially after their beat down in Miami in round one they were looking really good so uh, I, I think Milwaukee was going to be the Nets toughest task and I think the biggest enemy to the Nets 
much uh, success this season all along has been the possibility of injury. And they're dealing with that now, too, on top of the Bucks. So I think if the Nets can get through this series, get a fresh series with some time to recover for their stars, I, I think that's that, that's what they want to do. Because right now they're having everything hit them, their toughest foe and, and their injuries. So uh, if they can get past this, I think it will definitely be smoother sailing ahead. So on a scale of one to ten, then how confident are you that the Nets make it out of this Bucks series? It all depends on James Harden's injury status. I mean, right now it, it's up in the air. If you tell me he's back in game six, assuming they lose game five, I'll say it's a 50-50 shot. Um, but if he's not in back in game six, I think there's little to no chance the Nets win this series. So um, the, the Bucks have to be seen as the favorites right now, which is crazy to think about how the first after the first way the first few games of this series went. So uh, it's tough. I never would have thought a few days ago that the Nets could be home before this weekend, but the Nets are just trying to survive into the weekend, get it to a game seven at home at this point. And uh, it's not looking too good. We'll see what happens with James Harden. Well, Billy, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us tonight. We appreciate it. For those that are listening that want to either give you a follow on social media or check out any of your pieces, where are the best places to find you these days? Yeah, you guys could follow me on Twitter at Billy Reinhardt, and I'll link anything I do over there, whether it's interviews, podcasts, um, write uh, pieces. So um, just follow me over there, and you'll have the one-stop shop for all Billy things. Beautiful. Well, we appreciate you taking the time. Everything's going to hinge, I guess, on uh, health going forward. So if you're a Nets fan there, I, I don't know if you've got some sort of little prayer candle or something you can light in your house, but hopefully he's back. We'll see what happens. Game five goes tomorrow night. And Billy, thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And that's a wrap for another episode of the Dine Sports Podcast on the Dine Sports Podcast Network. Be sure to check out some of our sister shows there. You can check out the Front Office Podcast. They've got all sorts of great interviews that they just posted, as well as some more amazing guests coming up, too. We've also got our new fantasy football podcast, the Dynasty League, that's going to be launching shortly. So if you haven't already, check out some of their social media accounts. You can get some sneak peeks on who the hosts are going to be, some of the topics they're going to cover, all that fun stuff and more. But for now, huge shout out to both of our guests tonight, CEBL Commissioner Mike Morreale and Billy Reinhardt from SB Nation covering all things Brooklyn Nets, sitting down, talking basketball with us, see if the Nets can pull off the big win without two of their big three tonight against the Bucks. No Kyrie, no James Harden. We'll see if KD can put the team on his back. If not, Going back to Milwaukee on the brink of elimination. So definitely a big time game tonight in the NBA. If you haven't already, drop us a review, share the episode with a friend, follow us on social media. All of our handles are at Dine Sports. They're all the same. Connect with you on there. Go check out our YouTube page as well, too, for some behind the scenes looks at some of the stuff that we've got going on, as well as some exclusive content we put up there all the time. Got a monthly contest going on between now and June 30th, so you could possibly win yourself a nice little gift card, a little prize pack, simply by following us on one of those accounts. So go and check that out on our Instagram page or Twitter for details today. Until next time, folks, we'll see you in a bit. Thank you.